You know you've got to sing along. But don't you know This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Gary Sheely. Gary, are you ready to be great today? Yes, I am. Thank you. Gary is the founder and CEO of 180 Consulting and also an associate at the Safety Institute. Gary works with organizations that want to develop a proactive approach in, in preventing workplace violence. Gary conducts training sessions on raising awareness and standards for safety best practices. As a result of his work, clients often share a significant drop in costs and time associated with violence and bullying and improvement in building a safety culture. When Gary's not speaking or writing, he's helping people safely jump out of an airplane, emphasis on safely. Gary, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, so go ahead, Gary. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I talk about workplace violence. Um, and probably I wanted to just kind of clarify something about that topic uh, so that we're all on the same page here. Uh, according to the FBI, there are four kinds. There's four types of workplace violence. And, and just real quickly, I'll run through them. Number one is criminal intent, like when somebody comes in from the outside to like rob a gas station, that's, that's considered workplace violence. Uh, the, the second type is uh, when the perpetrator is uh, a customer or a client of the organization. Uh, the third type is, is worker on worker or worker on supervisor, uh, peer to peer within the organization. And the fourth type is when the perpetrator has a personal relationship with the targeted victim, but not really associated with the organization. I talk about number three, the, the worker-on-worker type of uh, workplace violence, primarily because I think that uh, that type of violence, the supervisors and managers and, and leaders probably have the most uh, influence in the ability to prevent. So it, it, it's, it's exciting uh, to, to talk about that and know that you're making a difference in somebody's life. And Gary, this is me, but... And tell me if I'm incorrecting this, but usually you work on work on a worker. Usually that's just happen, right? Usually there's some bullying involved, or someone's been treated, you know, oh yes, effectively. And usually that just happens. Someone wakes up and say, "I'm going to go be a volunteer today with this other person." That something that's triggered usually triggers that, right? Oh yes, yeah. so I'm almost always. In fact, uh, uh, the the three uh, cultural factors in a workplace that are always present. Uh, in some degree are number one, when there's a pervasive sense of injustice, like you just, just mentioned. Uh, the second one would be when the culture tolerates bullying behaviors, just as, as you also mentioned. And the, the third one would be when uh, supervisors and managers have an abusive style. Those three are the unholy Trinity when it comes to setting the stage. And when we, when we talk about that phrase, workplace violence, also, whenever I go out to speak, I try to clarify that as well. When you hear that phrase, 
it tends to conjure up visions of like mass shootings and chaos and screaming and blood and police tape and all that. Well, the fact is that that workplace violence happens on a continuum that starts with like acts of violence or vandalism, excuse me, which is violence against property. And then it moves up the scale, to, you know, to bullying, intimidation, simple assault, and then the, the things that actually make it out of the six, six o'clock news. Uh, whenever there's a mass shooting, you know, the news media is all over that. But if we focus on that, we really miss the much larger picture because these less visible acts of violence are far more common. And in the aggregate, they're a lot more costly to American industry and to the uh, collective psyche of American workers. And they just never make the news. And so that's, you know, that, that, that's important to me to point out that uh, these, these less common things that don't make the news are ubiquitous and, and preventable. The other thing that's a myth, I think, and I, I want to talk about two myths that uh, really hurts our efforts to curtail workplace violence. Number one is, uh, for example, the shooting at Virginia Tech, the, the perpetrator's name was Cho Sung Hyu. He killed 49 people. And um, there was one tearful young lady being interviewed after that, and she said, well, he just snapped. There wasn't anything we could have done. And the truth is, no, he did not just snap. And in fact, he was pretty well known to campus security uh, for some behaviors that were kind of disturbing. And uh, it's, it's not that those things weren't acted upon. They were, but they just weren't acted upon decisively enough. There are behavioral markers uh, prior to such acts of violence. And, and Hugh had, had quite a few of them. And the other myth and I hear this a lot. I'm surprised at how long, at how much I hear this, is that we can um, just profile, we can do uh, pre-employment profiles on uh, prospective employees and just eliminate those that might become violent. And that is a real dangerous myth. Um, profiles tend to be self-validating after the fact. It's easy to fit a perpetrator into a profile after an incident. But the truth is that a lot of people are going to fit uh, any number of those traits on that profile and never become violent. Um, under the right circumstances, pushed beyond their ability to cope, almost anybody can become violent. And so also profiles, they may actually help create the event they're intended to pre prevent because if a worker who could become violent feels singled out in some way to exacerbate his or her perception of procedural injustice, that sets the stage. So those two myths, I think, I'm, I really wanted to get that in, that, that, that you can't count on uh, those things being true. But uh, the, the, the other three, uh, you, you can profile a workplace with those, those three uh, uh, situations that I mentioned, the sense of injustice and bullying and abusive supervision. So um, that, that I really wanted to make that point, that those are the things to look for. Gary, how, how does people skills, or probably better question, how does the lack of people skills play into this? Um, actually, quite a bit. Um, let, me, let me talk about that injustice thing, okay? Um, organizational psychologists uh, tell us there's three different kinds of perceptions of injustice. Now, I'm emphasizing the word perception because even if there's not really any injustice, if, it's, if there's perceived to be injustice, that's, that's all that counts. There's distributive injustice where it's you know, perceived as unfair uh, 
distribution of rewards to employees and there's procedural injustice where it's perceived that that in, in the processes that resolve disputes and alloc- allocate resources, there's, there's unfairness. But the third kind is most important, and that is uh, interpersonal or interactional injustice. And this is when there is a perceived inequality in the level of respect and dignity and courtesy demonstrated by those who are involved in carrying out the procedures and policies. And I think, I think that's what you were alluding to. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's that um, it's that interpersonal uh, injustice that uh, actually does more than anything to, to set the, the, the stage for uh, aggression. And so, yeah, uh, people skills and, and knowing, uh, just knowing how to deal with people in a positive way can go a long way in, um, in, in, in making your workplace resistant to acts of violence. I mean, it's amazing to me how many managers or bosses don't do the simple thing is just tell people, thank you for a job well done, right? Yeah, it comes down to um, management style, I think. And probably the gold standard on management style uh, is a book by Daniel Goleman. Um, and um, I, don't remember, I don't remember the name of the book right now, but he, uh, I, he identifies and describes uh, six or seven styles and one of them is the commanding style. Um, it's like the image of a, image of a military sergeant barking orders, and uh, they they're they're likely to be highly critical, like you mentioned. Uh, very rarely play, uh, praise for a job well done, and it makes good morale and job satisfaction almost impossible. But the point that Goldman makes is, if you do a survey of of management styles, leadership styles. This is the most common one, and I can't really account for that. There's a very interesting uh, study done in 19, uh, 1997 by uh, Dr. Wendy Levinson, and it, it, this really speaks to what we were just talking about. She um, wanted to analyze why, uh, what, what the difference is, what kind of doctors were most likely to be sued for malpractice. Immediately, I was interested in this study. And so she, when her, her method was to record and analyze hundreds of hours of conversations between doctors and their patients. And in the study, she had an experimental group and a control group. One, oh, half of the doctors had never been sued, and half had been sued at least twice. So there's a big difference between these doctors. And here's what she found out. There was virtually no difference at all. This is startling. There's virtually no difference in the number of mistakes documented in these two groups of doctors. But here's what she found out. The doctors who had not been sued, number one, they spent an average of three minutes longer with every patient, which is uh, 18.3 minutes versus 15 minutes. That, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in the perception of patients, it is. The second thing is that these doctors that were not sued were much more likely to be active listeners and they'd say things like, well, I'd like to know more about that or tell me how you're feeling about this. Number three, they were much more likely to initiate humor and laugh, patient visit. And the last one uh, is that these doctors who hadn't been sued made a regular practice of what Levinson called orienting comments. Like, well, let's do an examination and we'll talk about what we find or be thinking about any questions you might have before we wrap up. And so this study was actually launched to find out 
what type of doctor was less likely, likely to be sued. And they didn't get the results they were expecting. What we learn is that the perception of injustice that drives medical malpractice litigation is not predicted on the number of mistakes a doctor makes. It's, it's not on his or her skills, but it was whether or not the doctor had engaged in trust-building behaviors during interaction with the patient. In a nutshell, is the doctor likable? And so that's pretty easy to transfer into the workplace. When supervisors and managers are skilled at trust-building interaction with their workers, the perception of injustice that often precedes workplace aggression is much more likely to be held at a minimum. I, I just found that to be a startling study. And you think about it, even though it's a three, only a three-minute difference, that three minutes is probably just enough time to add, add, answer one critical question, or at least what the patient thinks is a critical question, right? Just those three extra minutes answering a question for the patient. Yeah, that and uh, along with the, uh, the the clear personal interest in, in the patient. I mean, you, you've been to the doctor. I've been to the doctor. I've been to, you know, all kinds of different doctors. And there are some I just really like, I connect with. And there are some that are just, you know, it doesn't really seem like they care much about me. It's a, it's really, it's really something to think about. It is. So Gary, can you talk some about a, a skilled kind of confrontationalist? Uh, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I do, I do a lot of that uh, kind of uh, consulting. Uh, it's called uh, tactical confrontation. Um, and uh, what I, I teach skills that are designed to, um, gain control of an angry person, you know, you're suddenly faced with an angry person and, you know, they're, they're blaming you for their problem and they're hostile and uh, they may be using foul language. They're obviously angry. How do you get them to cooperate without resorting to threats or force yourself? And I do a great deal of that training. Now, I think the ironic thing about that is I would much rather spend time with you uh, teaching you how to engage, teaching supervisors how to engage and manage for engagement and, and, and prevent that event. But uh, people are always interested in that topic. And um, I have, um, well, first of all, there's some mistakes that we make uh, when we're faced with an angry person. And uh, the first mistake that we make, and this is going to sound strange, is that we try to reason with them. Uh, angry people, uh, you cannot engage an angry person uh, uh, rationally. You, you have to connect with them on an emotional level. Um, when, when we are angry, all that, uh, that, uh, that brain activity that normally takes place in our four brains where we, we, where we do rational thought processes, we plan our day, we anticipate the... Uh, the, the outcome of our of our behaviors, that brain activity that takes place in our forebrain when we're angry gets shifted to our midbrain, and that is the fight or flight type of uh, thinking that we do. We um, we sh we shift into that mode when we're angry. It's just an automatic response, and so that's why trying to reason with an angry person, which is something we all do, doesn't work. It's because they're really not at, at, at home in that part of their brain right then. Uh, they've gone to a different part of their brain. And uh, you have to engage them where they are. And I can talk about that in, in, in a little while here. The, 
so the first mistake we make is we, we try to reason with them. The second mistake we make is that we return emotional and verbal force for emotional and verbal force. Um, we, uh, they, they become angry, they raise their voice, so we become angry, we raise our voice. It's uh, tit for tat, it's, uh, we exchange insult for insult, demand for demand, that kind of thing. I, when I go out to speak, I always use an analogy uh, from martial arts. Uh, everybody knows what karate is, everybody knows what judo is. Um, they're both martial arts, but they are poles apart in terms of their philosophy. Uh, people who are taught karate are taught to use force, pure and simple. And the most concentrated and judicious and well-timed use of force is what is taught. And that's what makes you a good karate uh, uh, practitioner. Judo, however, is, is a martial art, but it's totally opposite. When you learn judo, you're taught uh, not to add your own force, your own energy into the conflict, but rather to redirect and deflect the force of the other. Use their force against them to keep them off balance, to do things that are unexpected. And so, and the, the one thing that we, there are two, two words that are almost always out of our mouth. The first words out of our mouth when we engage an angry person, and I can probably just turn that over to you to, to tell me what they are, Jason. What do we say to a person when they come to us and they're really angry? Uh, man, you have several things. You can tell them, what do you, what do you, what, you know, what do you, how, how are you going to say that to me? What are you talking about? You know, or what about calm down? Calm down. Yeah. Calm down. Th th those are pretty much the first two words out of everybody's mouth and it doesn't work. And the reason for that, and you may, you may not have thought of this before, but calm down is verbal karate it's because it's a demand. It's uh, spoken in the imperative voice. In fact, I got to say this, that in, in the 30 years of, of, of teaching this technique, I, I have never heard of an angry person being told to calm down and have them respond by saying, oh, oh you know, you're right. I am a little overwrought. You're such a good person for pointing that out. <laughs> Can we be friends on Facebook now? Uh, it just doesn't happen. So. What do you do in that situation? Two things. Number one, and, and you can't skip this one, uh, because if you, if you skip this one, uh, you're lost. You got to gain control of yourself. Uh, you must maintain your professional face, because if you allow yourself to get sucked into the anger vortex of the other person, you're going to be in your midbrain. And you're not going to be responding to anybody. You're going to be reacting. In fact, you're both going to be reacting to each other. And you're going to be like two people fighting in the backseat of a, of a speeding car with nobody at the wheel. Nobody's in charge. And you're going to go in the ditch. So the first thing you have to do is gain control of yourself. Uh, and, and know what your buttons are. Know what your hot buttons are. And, 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 and have a pretty good self-awareness of how you respond and not respond that way. You have to maintain your professional face. Uh, the second thing that you do is, is to work a system that it's, 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 it's kind of a proprietary system uh, of mine. And it goes, um, it, you can remember it with an acronym that is the word LEARNS. L-E-A-R-N-S, learns. 
Um, and uh, I'll just go down the line now. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be done in this specific order, but this specific order uh, helps us to use the acronym, which helps to remember it. The L stands for listen. And I got to tell you, when, uh, when you're faced with somebody who is uh, close to rage, uh, it is hard to listen because we want to correct them. They may be saying things that are totally untrue. We want to uh, contradict them. What you need to do is take a deep breath and listen and uh, use attending behaviors and, you know, say, uh-huh, and lean in and make eye contact. Listen. Um, the, uh, the E, uh, it's learns, the L stands for listen, the E stands for empathize. Also, a, a counterintuitive behavior. Uh, I've had people say, you know, I can't empathize with somebody who's angry. It means I agree with them. And that's not true. Uh, empathy does not mean you agree with them. It, it means that you understand the reasons for their anger. And an empathetic statement um, sounds something like, and you can, you know, in, in, any, any variety of combinations of this, but it would sound something like, you know, I understand why you're angry. If uh, that happened to me, I'd be angry too. Or it, it must be difficult to be held responsible for something that you had no control of. You know, those, those kinds of things. Um, Empathy, uh, uh, Carl Jung, uh, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, he called empathy one of the most powerful forces in all of human interaction. And he's right. Uh, empathy will put out at least some of the fire every single time it's used. So uh, L-E, the A stands for ask. And um, that means just simply get, keep them talking. Uh, ask them, you know, who, what, why, when, where, and how, you know. Uh, one thing that this does, it, it, it helps you to actually understand what the real problem is, which is kind of important. Uh, it, it also uh, further empathizes, emphasize, emphasizes your empathy for them because you're trying to understand the problem from their perspective. And the sneaky thing that this does is that while they're answering your questions about why they're so angry, they're having to move some of that, that brain activity out of their midbrains back into their forebrains. And the more you can get them in their forebrains, the more likely, likely you'll be able to actually use rationality with them. So listen, empathize, ask. The R stands for restate um, or paraphrase. Uh, and basically that just simply means uh, in your own words, you say, let me see if I've got this right. You're angry because, and then you, you put it in your own words. And um, that, that further, and, you know, it, it further em emphasizes your empathy. Uh, it also helps you to understand it. And it, there's also a subtle psychological um, quid pro quo going on here. Uh, it gives you then the right to ask them to paraphrase you. And as you cycle through these, uh, these techniques, uh, you know, several times, what you're doing is you are converting the rant into a dialogue, which is exactly what you want. And uh, it, I've used it over and over um, uh, many, many times. Uh, don't have, probably don't have time for some of those stories, but uh, I've proven that this works. So listen, empathize, ask, restate. Uh, the N stands for narrate from the beginning, 
which means that after you've cycled first through the first four several times and you do have uh, them calmed down, and uh, this, this almost always works, then you go back to the very beginning and you narrate every, everything you've heard them say in your own words, except here's the difference. You're stopping along the way to say, did I hear you correctly on that? Did I get that right? And it's uh, what you're trying to do is to get them to say yes. And it's just an old sales technique. If you've ever had any sales training, they say you get your prospect to say yes. And it works in calming down an angry person too. And so once you have narrated through the beginning and you both have agreement on what went on, then the S, L-E-A-R-N-S, the S stands for suggest a solution. And uh, the idea here is to... uh, Turn the angry person from uh, your enemy into your partner. Well, let's see. I think we both understand what the problem is. Let's see if we can figure out how to fix it. And, of course, you have to adapt that to whatever situation you're in. But, um, like I said, I've used that many times, uh, uh, both professionally and personally. And, Gary, I think a lot of supervisors have missed the opportunity that sometimes, sometimes your people that work for you just want to vent to you, right? Oh, they do, of, yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of managers like miss the opportunity, let them vent, let them get off their chest, and things go back to normal. Oh yeah, and and because it's it's so um, it's so intuitive for us to want to correct, you know, uh, that, that's not true. That didn't happen, uh, and, and it's it's just like the, this intuitive reaction that we want to do, and and you got to do it at the right timing. And you have to understand yourself uh, and, and use your professional face and, and, and work, work this tactically. That's, that's, how that, that's how that works. And I think a lot of supervisors mess up too, like you said before, like an employer comes to supervisor with some clients or whatever, and the supervisor forgets to the supervisor, right? They go into you know, defense mode, employee mode, like they're talking like they're, they're code, like their peers. Yeah. Or no, you're the supervisor, you know, act like the supervisor, you know. Yeah, you used a very important word there too, Jason. You used the word uh, defense. And um, it, it, it's important to understand that at the heart of every confrontation that goes south is this concept of defensiveness. Uh, when we use that phrase, you know, don't get defensive, but we never stop to think, well, what are we defending? Well, we're defending our self-view, according to William Swan, a, a, a psychologist out of Texas. We're defending uh, this set of of characteristics that we believe to be true about ourselves. And uh, when we feel that somebody is challenging the validity of our self-view, um, we immediately f- experience this little flash of a special kind of anxiety that Heinz Kohet uh, called um, uh, disintegration anxiety. And we respond to that flash of anxiety by jumping to the defense of our self-view. And that's what defensiveness is. And uh, if you can avoid Hitting that button, uh, you can go straight from the from the problem to the dialogue without having to stop off at the resentment and the argument. It, it's a skill, uh, and um, it you, you and you learn it by pr- with uh, just having some self awareness and by practicing it. It's really it's really not hard to learn. Okay, what advice you would have for like say there's a manager out there and they have an employee and this person is, is difficult every day. They're toxic. No one gets along with them. How do you deal with that? Well, I would I, first of all, I would I would try to to understand the employee from a personal point of view. Uh, 
Um, <clears throat> there, the, sometimes you can just uh, change the way you interact with them. And if you, if you have kind of a commanding style, you might, you know, take a look at that. Um, you know, I, in my book, I talk about, um, you know, managing for engagement. And also that's not hard too. Um, uh, you mentioned this earlier, recognizing your employees. That's just so incredibly important. Um, there's um, a book by Paul Marciano and he talks about employee engagement. And he says that the, uh, the estimates uh, on, on the return for recognition are close to 100 to 1. Every minute you spend in sincere recognition yields 100 minutes of discretionary effort by the recognized employee. I thought that was kind of startling. Um, and w- when you recognize, you have to do it you know, right away. You have to be specific about what it is that you appreciate. Um, and uh, you really ought to do it in person. So I would begin working with a difficult employee of, in, in, in that way and uh, just, just take it easy and see if you can't gain their trust. Gary, can you talk some about your book, Safe at Work? Uh, yeah, um, I, um, I think, I, I, think I, I wrote that in 2016. Um, I, uh, I, I've been interested in, in work, workplace violence, especially, I guess, type three workplace violence for a long time. And in my, in my research, I went looking for something uh, that would talk about that, and I couldn't find anything. So I decided I'm going to spend a couple of years researching this myself and, and write the book myself. And um, uh, the book has resonated with a lot of people because uh, most of my speaking engagements when I go out, uh, they've seen this book uh, or they're aware of this book. And um, I talk about uh, in, in section one, how, how do you assess your workplace? You know, what are your risk factors in your workplace? I talk about uh, behavioral and, and social social traits that are that are common to violent perpetrators. Um, how to uh, assess your culture? You know what what uh, adjustments could you make? And by the way, um, workplace culture uh, flows from the top down usually, and so that's why I've, that's why I've written it to to supervisors because supervisors and managers have the lion's share of the mitigating power when it comes to creating a culture that is less likely to experience violence. And then I just go in the, in the second uh, section of, of the book, I just go down the line, you know, what can, what can you do? Uh, take a look at your supervisory style. And the other thing I haven't mentioned yet is a bullying policy. Boy, I, I tell you what, if you don't have a bullying policy in your workplace, you really need to get one and there's no excuse for not having one because you could, you know, you could go online and, and download all kinds of templates that you could then adapt to your organization. But this, this idea of bullying, bullying in the workplace is huge. I mean, huge when it comes to predicting um, worker on worker violence and, Bullying and abusive supervision are real similar because um, they, bullying is all about um, power, establishing power over another person. Uh, bullies in the workplace, uh, 
bully their uh, their their fellow fellow employees in order in, in in order to create an imbalance of power. Uh, bullies are all about power. Uh, abusive supervisors uh, just exploit uh, the imbalance of power that already exists by virtue of their uh, of their position. But a, a bullying policy is so important. Um, the other thing is knowing what to look for in employees to recognizing to to recognize them as at risk for workplace violence. I'm not talking about a profile here. I'm talking about um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about behaviors that can uh, be recognized in real time, and there are a number of, uh, of behaviors that uh, that mark somebody for being at risk. Now, they, it doesn't mean that they're going to become violent, but what it means is these are indicators of stress. And so, when you know your employees and you know what their baseline is, you can recognize these uh, indicators of stress. And I, once again, I'm not talking about uh, a, a profile at all. I'm, I'm talking about recognizing behaviors that should be paid attention to. I can, I can, I can give you several of those just off the, just off the top of my head here. Uh, these are changes that that indicate stress, like job performance. They're late more often, or they're absent more often. They're making more mistakes, uh, bad decisions, uh, forgetfulness. For, uh, confusion, distraction. You should pay attention to that. Um, another one is they're taking more sick days. Uh, they're staying off work for longer than expected or a sudden weight loss or weight gain uh, or a neglect of personal hygiene that wasn't there before. These are indicators of stress. Um, also, the, the, the personal hygiene, hygiene thing is often associated with depression as well. Um, inappropriate emotion, like a crying or screaming or sulking or temper tantrums or overreacting to criticism. That's a big one. That should get your attention. Um, strong language that wasn't used before. Name calling. Uh, obscene gestures. Uh, another important one is uh, changes in social behavior. Uh, and you see, to recognize all these, you have to, you have to know your workers have to have paid attention to them. You have to know what their baseline is. Um, increased conflict with other workers or withdrawal from others uh, that they normally associate with. You need to pay attention to that. And then another really important one is uh, what I call expressions of desperation. Um, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't think I can stand this much more. Somebody has to do something, you know. And, of course, it goes without saying that any talk of suicide is an absolute red flag behavior that you just cannot ignore. Uh, it's, it's often a very short distance between the decision to do violence to yourself and the decision to do violence to other people. And I, I, there's one more, and, of course, probably I don't even need to talk about it, but substance abuse any kind of substance abuse, especially when it wasn't there before or it, it, or it's worse than it was. Gary, I want to shift topics up now and let's talk about your skydiving. <laughs> okay. uh, how did you get started in skydiving? You know, um, when I was uh, in, in high school, I guess uh, grade school, 
Uh, I was a, lot, a latchkey kid. My mom and dad both worked, and I would come home and I'd watch TV. That's what kids do. And there was this, uh, this uh, old black and white TV show on called Ripcord. It had Ken Curtis, uh, who um, played in Gunsmoke way back in the day, and then another fellow, I can't remember his name. I was fascinated with that show. Uh, it's about skydivers who solved problems and solved crimes by somehow skydiving. And I thought to myself, someday I'm going to do that. And um, it wasn't until I moved down here near, uh, near the Tulsa area that I was close enough to an actual sky- skydiving drop zone that I could go out and be trained and become a skydiver. And, and since then, I've become an instructor. And, uh, and uh, a couple of years or several years ago, um, I think my, my funnest skydive ever, you want to hear about that? Yes, yes. Funnest skydive, skydive ever was at my 40-year high school class reunion, I jumped into it and surprised everybody. And that, was, that was just really, really fun. I hope you, had that. I hope you got that on a video. I do. In fact, I do have that on video. I wear, I wear a GoPro camera. And um, it was uh, a fairly, uh, from, a, from a safety standpoint, it was kind of technical because coming in, it was, it, was on, it was on a farm, a farmstead in Iowa. That's where, I, that's where I'm from. And coming in, I had to avoid a 320-foot cell tower on my left that had guy wires coming that you couldn't see. On my right were 13,000-volt uh, power lines, and right in the middle was a pond. I had, I had to miss all those things. And I had uh, probably a 30-by-30-foot 30 patch of real estate that I had to end up in, and I did. Uh, but uh, I was paying attention, <laughs> and that was really a lot of fun. So how many, how many skydives or how many jumps have you done so far? A little over 500. And you're, and you're, also, you're also an instructor also? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm a free fall coach, which means I, I do a halo coaching. Uh, halo, that's a high altitude, low opening. Uh, teach uh, students how to uh, maneuver in, in uh, free fall groups in free fall. I'm also a classroom instructor and uh, an IAD jump master which means um, IAD stands for Instructor Assisted Deployment. It's a little bit like uh, the old static line, except we don't use static lines anymore. We, we take the pilot chute in our hand and we climb out on the strut with the student, tell them to let go an arch. And when they do, I toss the pilot chute into the air and it pulls the pin and pulls our parachute out. So the 500 jumps you've done, are, do you feel the same every single time? Like you're nervous every single time, you're happy, or each jump you have a different feeling? You know, it's uh, it, 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 for the first, I would say for the first 50 jumps, you have kind of a dry mouth. But then after that, it becomes a little bit like uh, getting to the top of the ski run. And you're just anticipating having a good time. And I, I've, been, I've been that way for the last uh, 450 jumps. It's just, it's just an awful lot of fun. And you, I got to tell you, though, the warning is it makes pretty much anything that you can ride in an amusement park a big yawn. Yeah, I can imagine. So of the students you had, like for the people who done the first jump, what percentage had like backed out and not done the first jump? Or they, or they all go through with it? Um, no, they don't all go through with it. Um, and we have a system um, because uh, w- w- when we're just about ready to open the door, we ask the student, are you ready to skydive? And they have to say yes. Uh, when, we, when we open the door, that's, that's when the... Uh, the anxiety starts because all of a sudden the wind rushes in the door and it's louder because of the engine, the airplane engine. And um, I've had a couple, I've had two that looked out the door at 5,000 feet of air and 
decided, no, nope, I can't do this. I've had two. Uh, one of them actually came back and actually did it later. But one just decided, and you know what? I respect that because it's when you're really, really scared uh, that you really can't focus on what, on what you're supposed to do. And so rather than go through with it when you're terrified, uh, I respect a lot more someone who says, you know what? I am too rattled to do this. And that, that to me is just good self-awareness and I don't want them to do it either. Gary, is it ever too hot or too cold to go skydiving? Well, um, it, I've, I've, uh, I've jumped in the winter, uh, and you do have to wear gloves. Um, and, uh, you, any, any kind of, uh, exposed skin is going to get really, really cold. So I've jumped, I've jumped in the winter. It's never too hot because for uh, every thousand feet of altitude, you lose about three and a half degrees. So if it's a, if it's a 70 or if it's 90 on the ground, it's going to be 35 degrees cooler at altitude at 10,000 feet. And so, and there's no bugs up there and there's no pollen. So if you've got allergies, you're, you're, you're in good shape. Gary, thanks for that. Gary, do you have any resources that you can share with the listeners? Um, actually, yes. Um, I have uh, a lot of uh, uh, blog posts that they can uh, look at on my website. Um, if they want to, they can, uh, I, can, I can send them one of my books. Um, they're not on. I have three books on Amazon, but uh, this last one I haven't uh, put on Amazon yet because I like to in, engage the readers in much the same way that you're doing with me right now. I, I will probably end up putting it on Amazon, but uh, if you want a copy of, of Safe at Work, How Smart Supervisors Reduce the Risk of Workplace Violence, then uh, send me an email uh, and I'll get one out to you. Um, the, my, my website is uh, uh, 180 Consulting. That is the number one, the word 80, consulting, all one word, 180consulting.com. Uh, and so... Uh, I think some, some of those resources would be uh, helpful. Uh, you, I think I have them cataloged by topic, actually, my blog posts. Um, go ahead. Gary, can you share your social media with us for both yourself and your company so people can reach out to you? Uh, yeah. Um, you, uh, you can reach me. I, I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, you can just find me by uh, doing a search on LinkedIn. Um, and I, I actually uh, engage with a lot of clients and former clients on Facebook. Uh, and, uh, I just, just on, on a personal level, it helps me to maintain personal relationships with my clients. I don't do much Twitter. Um, but, uh, I, I do, uh, I do get on LinkedIn every day. And to listen, we'll have the links to his, his book and his gifts and his social media on the show notes. And, you, and the show notes are at www.cabinetshrblog.com. Gary, we're coming to the end of our talk. Can you give us any wisdom or advice on any subject you want to talk about? Well, yeah, I would say, um, if you're a manager and a supervisor or, or a supervisor and, and you want to really take a good look at, at reducing your risk of workplace violence, look at that factor, that, uh, that injustice factor, and uh, focus on you know, managing to engage with your employees. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, management, uh, managing to engage is just the opposite of the kinds of behaviors that create that sense of injustice that, that leads to uh, the violence. So that would be my best bit of advice. Learn how to manage for engagement. And uh, that in, instead of not doing certain things, I would say do that. And it's going to 
put you on the right path to uh, making your organization less likely to have type three workplace violence. And Gary, like you said earlier, it's not only is there injustice, but does the employee perceive there's injustice? Sometimes that's, that's even more important, I think. That's, it's more, yeah, it's the perception of injustice that, that matters. Uh, whether or not it's there, uh, it's the perception that actually creates the problem. Gary, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Jason. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. You know you've got to sing along. But don't you know something? This is the Cabinets HR Podcast, hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners, founders, and people in tech startups in HR. If you fall into one of these categories or are just curious about them, then this is the podcast for you. You will gain great insights from these great conversations. The Cabinets HR Podcast is brought to you by Cabinets HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people by automating the HR process. We believe that you don't need a full-time HR person to receive full-time HR expertise.